Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, Heartbreakers. Welcome back to another Breakdown Bonus episode. And if you're joining me from the main episode, oh my gosh, that was a lot. And a quick heads up, because this week's main episode covered intimate partner violence, that is going to be mentioned in this Breakdown Bonus episode. So if that's something that is triggering for you, just a heads up. Feel free to bow out until the next episode or just proceed with caution, if you will. But anyway, one of the great things about having done this podcast for so long is that some of the same topics do end up coming up and it gives us a chance to revisit breakdown bonus episodes that maybe you haven't listened to or it gives you a chance to listen to them in a different context. So I'm actually going to tack on two different breakdown bonus episodes from previous episodes into this bonus. So the first one that I'm going to add in is a conversation I had with Catherine Ripley. It was about a year ago and we talked about how to identify intimate partner violence in your relationship and I thought it was really interesting that this week's interviewee said that she was like I didn't think that I was in an abusive relationship I mean I kind of felt like maybe I was but because it didn't look like maybe how it did in the movies it didn't feel like it was a domestic violence situation so I'm going to be attaching that to the end of this because maybe that really resonated with you and I think the conversation between me and Catherine will really help you to have the courage to face what's going on in your relationship if that's really what's going on and the second episode that will also be included after the episode with Catherine Ripley is a conversation that I had with Dr. Margaret Rutherford again about a year ago and we had a conversation about how to trust your partner after you've just gotten out of a relationship with someone that you could not trust and there were a couple of really interesting things that came up in that conversation that I think will be really impactful for you and the first is that sometimes we identified the wrong patterns in our new relationships and start seeing them as red flags so Margaret is going to help us identify what are actual red flags in relationships when you're learning to trust again and what are the ones that you probably need to put on the back burner that may Maybe you've been seen as red flags and they really aren't that. She'll also talk about how to build trust within yourself again so that you can go into your next relationship ready to trust or at least give it your best swing. So that's what's coming up next. So let's get into it. It's finally not a miserable temperature outside, which only means one thing. Summer is coming up. And let's make one thing clear. There is Hibernation Abbey and there is Summer Abbey. And Summer Abbey likes to feel light and healthy. That's why I've been trying out meals from Factor. They've got meals shipped to your house that are super easy to heat up in a jiffy. And you're probably like, ew, a refrigerated meal. That must be so unhealthy and gross. No, I can confirm these are delicious. And they have so many different options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and veggie. You can also add on more than 60 add-ons every single week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. You get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring and you don't have to clean anything up. Head to factormeals.com slash breakup50 and use code breakup50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code breakup50 at factormeals.com slash breakup50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Once again, we're joined by trauma therapist Catherine Ripley, LMSW, and she's joining us again to talk about domestic violence. But if you want to run to her Instagram right now, check out all of her content. You can check her out on Instagram at therapy.with.com. 
Catherine. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So of course, we're going to be talking about domestic violence, intimate partner violence. So if that's a really triggering subject matter for you, definitely not the episode you want to join in. So Catherine, you were actually telling me that you're going to refer to some of the subject matter as intimate partner violence. Can you define the difference between that and domestic violence? Yes, absolutely. This is kind of like a square rectangle thing. Intimate partner violence is domestic violence, but not all domestic violence is intimate partner violence. Intimate partner violence is when there is abuse in a romantic relationship or a ex-relationship, so ex-partners or with co-parents. So sometimes like some of my clients will say like my son's father rather than saying my boyfriend or my ex-boyfriend. So all of those kinds of relationships, that is where we're talking about intimate partner violence. Domestic violence is a little bit more broad. That could be any kind of family relationship. So a parent abusing a child would also be considered domestic violence. A sibling abusing another sibling, any kind of family relationship, including spouses, boyfriend, girlfriend, co-parents. Domestic violence is more broad, but since you've already told me about the story that we're going to be referring to on today's episode, I'm going to be using the term intimate partner violence, which I abbreviate as IPV for short. Well, it's great to have more terminology to be able to identify what we're actually talking about. This is definitely a really interesting case of intimate partner violence because I think for me, like when I hear the term domestic violence or anything in that realm, I immediately think of like, well, somebody's getting physically abused. But are there any other, I mean, of course, we just heard one in in the episode that came out on Tuesday, but are there any other examples of how intimate partner violence can come up in these relationships? There's so much that still counts as abuse that is not physical. And if there's anybody who's listening at home and wants to read more about this, I would highly recommend that you go online and look up the power and control wheel. And if you're concerned about your safety at all, definitely do that in an incognito browser if your partner has access to your devices. But the power and control wheel is a really good place to start in terms of if you want to learn about these different ways that abuse can show up. It could be psychological abuse, which includes things like gaslighting, trying to convince you that you're crazy, trying to convince you that something that did happen didn't actually happen, making you think that you're crazy for having very valid emotions. It can be manipulation, you know, trying to manipulate you or coerce you into doing things that you are really not comfortable with. If there are children in the relationship, sometimes abusers will use the children in certain ways. So trying to undermine your parenting is a form of intimate partner violence or bad mouthing you to the children, trying to turn the children against you in some way. Sometimes abusers will threaten to call child protective services and get your kids taken away from you. That's also a method of abuse. Technology is another big one that people need to be mindful of. So tracking your location on your phone, tracking your location using social media, posting things about you on social media without your consent, going through your phone without your consent, or even coercing you into giving consent to go through your phone or to go through your email. Posting pictures of you online without your permission is also a form of abuse. Threatening to put you in a mental institution if you don't do what your partner wants you to do. It's any way of trying to have power and control over you using these various different tactics. What I thought was really jarring about this relationship was that this was somebody that she knew for a majority of her life and trusted Mm -hmm. and really it kind of came out of nowhere, this controlling behavior as somebody who listens to a lot of these types of stories where it sort of feels like this 
behavior comes out of nowhere. Is there a triggering instance that maybe would fire off this kind of behavior in somebody? Or are there things that we can notice, different behavior patterns that maybe this person had that she hadn't picked up on when they were just friends or something? There are some red flags that can come up early on in a relationship. If you notice these things, it might be time to take pause and kind of step back and say, okay, what's going on here? One of them could be trying to push the relationship to move too fast. Another one could be not being respectful of boundaries early on. And this could come up as things that seem relatively minor. Oh, I don't think I can do a date tonight. Can we do Saturday instead? And the person gets really upset and agitated about that. So examples like that where they're not really respecting boundaries or are not okay with you saying boundaries. Another thing that can come up early on in a relationship is there can be a lot of love bombing. This can be very tricky to sort of tease out. Is this love bombing or is this person just really excited to be with me? (laughs) And that's why so many people can fall into these kinds of situations so easily because it is very, very difficult to tell. But if you're noticing that you're being showered with love and affection and then as soon as you could do even the slightest thing that your partner or your new person doesn't like, the affection gets cut off very abruptly. That's a red flag that you definitely want to pay attention to. There are certain things that you can notice early on in a relationship that may indicate that there could be bigger problems that happen further down the line. As far as the other part of your question of is there anything in particular that triggers the abusive behavior to come out, I have heard a lot of clients tell me that things started to get bad either after they got married, after they got pregnant, or after they gave birth to their first child. Now, this is not a universal experience. It doesn't necessarily always happen that way. It could just be more of like a slow buildup over time, and there's not one event that makes a really big change happen. Sometimes those three events can be a turning point because the abuser in that situation may be thinking, okay, now we're married. Now I really have you. You're really mine. And I have more free reign to let all of my abusive behaviors come out and you're going to feel as though you can't leave me now. And the same can go for after you get pregnant or after you give birth to your first child. That's interesting because all of those things happened. They had their first kid together. They got married. She left her job as a hairdresser and went into the police academy. And something he kept saying to her was, well, you're just going to leave me now that you're making your own money. So I feel like it was a triggering situation for him to be like, oh my gosh, now she like she could possibly leave me like she's not the stay at home mom anymore. Yeah. And that is so important to be aware of because, you know, we were talking earlier about how there's other forms of abuse that are not physical violence. And what we tend to see in IPB situations is that abusers will escalate to physical violence when they sense that they are losing control of their partner or they may change tactics and go from one abusive tactic to another abusive tactic because if they sense that they may be losing control of that person then they're gonna up their game so to speak to try to get control back what is it about this need for control is it fueling insecurities why do they want control so bad so there's different ideas that people have about why abusers have this need to control their partners there's a really good book called why does he do that 
by Lundy Bancroft in case anybody's interested in reading more about this topic. But that's the book that informs a lot of my perspective about why abusers behave in this way. It really has a lot to do with social conditioning about men being entitled to control women. One of the things that he talks about in the book is that the biggest predictive factor of whether a boy is going to grow up to be a man who is abusive over his partners is how his father treats his mother. So if he's growing up in an environment where the father is abusive and controlling over the mother, then he is learning, he is getting that social message that men are supposed to control women. It really has a lot to do with patriarchy and misogyny and the way that boys receive that messaging that that kind of behavior is necessary in order to prove your masculinity and to be a man. That's so interesting. And I almost wonder if he felt emasculated because he had a job that's very stereotypically macho and now she's coming in and she's kind of on his level joining the police force. Mm -hmm. I can see how that would bring out a lot of insecurities. What I found so terrifying about this situation was that he basically was holding over the fact that he could just send her back to jail at any point if he left her. And so I felt so deeply for her when she told me that because I'm thinking like you can't really run from the law like if he's going to say that you tried to shoot him or something. So I don't know if if you've worked with with people who have been in similar situations, but how would you have advised this woman to get out of the situation and leave safely? That's a really tricky question because my training as a domestic violence counselor tells me that it's not a good idea to ever advise your client to leave a relationship in a particular way. And the reason for that is that leaving an abusive relationship statistically is the most dangerous time for a survivor. With as much knowledge about IPB as I have, every relationship is different. Every abuser is different. It's impossible to predict all of the variables and all of the different possible outcomes that could result from that. Whenever you're developing an exit strategy, it really has to be a collaborative process between the survivor and their counselor, advocate, whatever kind of helping professional they're working with to develop a strategy where the client is the one who feels that's the strategy that is most likely to work. Because for me to just go in and say, well, I had this other client who left in this way, maybe that'll work for you. That could potentially be leading the person into a very dangerous situation because what worked for one client is not necessarily going to work for the other. And the survivor is the only person who really has an intuitive sense of what their partner is likely to do, what they're not likely to do. It's going to be a risky situation no matter what, but the survivor in that relationship is the only person who can really make that decision about what is the best way for them to get out of it. I, as the worker, can offer resources that they may want to reach out to or that they may want to utilize. The way that I was trained is that you never advise somebody to leave in a particular way. I mean, that makes total sense. I completely understand. So when she went to jail and she came back, like she felt like she couldn't leave because, you know, if she leaves, she's going to get sent back to jail. But I can imagine there's a lot of victims that return to their partners after leaving. I would wonder from a victim's perspective why they would go back. In a lot of cases, it is a fear about, oh, you know, if I don't go back, then maybe he'll call the police 
Sanki again. If I don't go back, then maybe he will try to get my kids taken away from me. So it can be responding to the threats of the abuser. Sometimes it may be a situation where the person might feel like it's easier to go back to the relationship. There are some situations where the abuser is not necessarily threatening to do something that will harm the survivor's safety, but they could be harassing them, stalking them, using various other different abusive tactics that just make their life hell. I mean, I've had some conversations with clients who have left the relationship and who have said to me, I really don't want to be with him. I don't want to be in that relationship. But I honestly feel like the abuse that I was experiencing when I was with him was not as bad as the abuse that I'm experiencing now that I've left him. That can be a factor sometimes. People might think, well, I don't really want to be with this person, but it might just be easier. I might endure less suffering if I go back to this relationship. And then sometimes it could be there is just a really strong attachment there. You know, even though this is abuse, there's still attachment, there's still love in in that relationship. And so sometimes people go back because they still love the person and they still have that hope that maybe they can make it work with them. And that's okay. You know, I've had clients who have left and then gone back and then left again. It's a process of grief. You know, it's a process of grief realizing that this person is not the same as they were when you first started the relationship. And so sometimes the grieving process involves going back and then leaving again. And you may have to go through that cycle several times. Everybody's journey is different. Yeah, that was one of the most heart-wrenching things that she said in this interview. She said, like, I knew this person my whole life and I literally couldn't believe that somebody that I loved and respected this much for so long could do these things to me. Mm-hmm. How can victims separate the person they knew versus the person that's in front of them at this point in time? There's two answers to this question. One is that it's important to have some knowledge and some awareness about the behavior of abusers and the way that they conceal certain parts of themselves in the beginning of a relationship. Or maybe when you're just friends with that person, they're not going to show you certain parts of themselves that then come out later on when you are a romantic couple. Because abusers know that if they show you those abusive and controlling parts of themselves right off the bat, that you're not going to want to be in a relationship with them. They deliberately hide those things in the beginning, in the early stages. And then they let them come out later when they feel more comfortable or when they feel like that relationship is more solid and it's going to be more difficult for the person to leave. So that, I think, is the first part, understanding that pattern in abuser behavior to sort of make sense of, is this person so different than they were when I first knew them in the beginning? And then the second part of this question, I think, is just recognizing that you're going to be going through a grief process. If you're realizing, oh, wait, I don't think that I'm in a relationship with the same person anymore. Like, this is a different person than they were in the beginning. That is grief. And if we can label that as grief, then you can recognize, okay, you know, there are stages of grief. Denial is a stage of grief. Anger, bartering. It doesn't necessarily make it easier to deal with, but if you have the framework of grief to label what it is that you're going through, 
through, then I think it's easier to see, okay, I understand why it's difficult for me to accept that I no longer have this same relationship that I did in the beginning. Yeah. And leaving, as you said, it's the most dangerous time for a victim, but then you're also like having to grieve the relationship and who the per- mm-hmm. who that person was, along with all the trauma from that experience. When dealing with um, somebody who's been a victim of intimate partner violence, what would you say is a, is a good first step in therapy? Is there like a typically like a first exposition towards dealing with this really traumatic event? So in trauma therapy, we always start with stabilization, no matter what. And stabilization means establishing safety in your environment and establishing safety within yourself. So this could look a little bit different for everybody, depending on what they're coming in with. A lot of times survivors of intimate partner violence need to work on establishing safety in their environment first. If you've left the relationship, you may need to work on kind of reestablishing yourself as a single person, making sure that you have safeguards in place, like in case the abuser were to pop up again, do you have a plan for what you're going to do? If you have to co-parent with this person, do you have a plan for how you're going to do that in a way that is manageable for you? Do you have supportive people around you? A lot of times abusers will isolate as one of their tactics. They will cut you off from friends and family members. So one of the things that you may have to do is that you may have to rebuild your support system. So all of that is external stabilization. And then internal stabilization has to do with emotional regulation. A lot of survivors of intimate partner violence are going to have sort of classic PTSD expressions of exaggerated startle response, insomnia, intrusive memories about what happened. And so the first step is going to be giving a lot of coping tools to be able to deal with those things and to be able to bring that hypervigilance and the hyperactivation down a little bit so that you can feel a little bit calmer and a little bit more relaxed. I can imagine it's been incredibly difficult having to work with people who have experienced that and just not feeling safe within yourself. Mm -hmm. I know it's a very traumatic thing to have to go through. And so if there's somebody listening who's maybe afraid of A, having to leave a situation and then B, having to deal with that kind of trauma and that emotional work, is there any kind of words of encouragement or just maybe advice you would give to that person listening in? So I would definitely say take your time and don't try to do too much all at once. It is going to be difficult and it's going to take time. But if you are thinking about all like all of the different steps that you're going to have to go through in the process all at the same time, that's probably going to be very overwhelming. So I would definitely say breaking it down and really doing triage of like, okay, what do I need to do first? If I'm still in this relationship, do I need to work on establishing an exit strategy? I would say go online and find a hotline number for your area. And again, do this in an incognito browser unless you are absolutely certain that your partner does not have access to your devices. See if you can find a hotline number so that you can connect with an advocate or a counselor who is trained in dealing with this type of situation so that you have somebody who can support you in doing triage, figuring out what's the most important thing that you need to focus on first and only do that thing. Don't think about the rest of it. Just focus on what's the most important priority and then you can worry about what comes later. You can check out all of Catherine's information in the episode description. But now let's get into our conversation with Dr. Margaret Rutherford about learning how to trust again in a new relationship. I'm joined by Dr. Margaret Rutherford. She is the host of the Self Work Podcast and the author of 
of perfectly hidden depression. We are going to cover a wide variety of topics, but really going to be diving into self-trust and learning how to trust people again. So thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Abby. I'm delighted to be here. It's a real honor. A real theme of this episode was a betrayal. Somebody, their boyfriend left them for their best friend. And that's a real deep That's a double whammy, double whammy. Mm -hmm. A double whammy. But you actually said that you think learning how to trust yourself is the important thing here when it comes to diving into new relationships, right? Yes. I was just talking to someone earlier today in session about the fact that so often we make the mistake of giving someone our trust blindly and not really waiting for them to earn our trust. I mean, I think that that's not that you want to advocate for everyone being distrustful and having huge long yardsticks of you have to do this and this and this before I trust you. But at the same time, I think that we begin to focus on, well, these these are the things that should have told me that I couldn't trust this person. You know, the way they, I don't know, where they lived, what they looked like, what their job was, how they approach this, how they approach that. Actually, if you begin to focus on yourself and say, for example, what was the thing that I ignored from the very beginning of the relationship? Something that happened that now I look back on it and I thought, you know, that was really the beginning of it. It was the little seed of something that I chose to ignore or discount, or I was afraid to see it. I didn't want to see it. I was in lust love, but often that is the thing that blossoms into the real problem. Let's say your ex was short and a student loved to fish and flirted a lot. You meet someone tall and who hated fishing and you know whatever I just said uh, and didn't flirt at all. Was very quiet. Oh, well, okay. Now I can trust this person. Wrong. Basically, you want to say, "Am I acting different in this relationship? All I have control over is what was my part of this relationship going awry." Now, this is not to say that is your fault or your responsibility because someone you chose to love or trying to love went outside of the relationship and had an affair with your best friend. Um, no, that that's not what I'm saying at all. I talk about this with patients who come in, a couples who come in where there's been affairs. There is no excuse for someone going outside of the relationship to somehow take care of some need and then keep it a secret. Those kinds of things do happen in a context. And for you to be able to trust yourself that you're not recreating that same dynamic. Maybe it comes from, you know, your family of origin where you had a parent who had affairs, or maybe it comes from all kinds of things in your childhood. Maybe you were abused and you didn't, you don't recognize abuse. It could be so many things. And so you want to take a, a what I call an autopsy, which is sort of a gruesome term, but an autopsy of your part of the relationship that was good, that you would, you think back and you go, you know what? I would do that all over again because that's what my strength is. That's who I want to be. That action represented my values. But at the same time, you say, you know, I was confused here. I was agitated here and I didn't say anything. What was it that was your part of this relationship being disappointing that you can claim and that you can say, I need to work on this and not be in a relationship probably (laughs) until I know that this is something I can achieve. I've heard it said on multiple podcasts that sometimes we can find ourselves in relationships with really similar types of people. And it's because we Mm -hmm. can often go back to what's comfortable. Is there any truth to that? It's familiar. Yes. I think the most recent example of that is someone I'm working with whose father was very abusive to her, very controlling of her. And she has sought relationships that were also very abusive and very controlling. And as I said a few minutes ago, could not see that as abuse because it was familiar. Now, we can take the opposite of that. We can take relationships 
relationships that don't seem to have any boundaries, that there are no secrets. It's called enmeshment. You you almost know each other's thoughts before you say them. And that's what they expect. And that's what's familiar. And so they choose people who do that with them because that's what love looks like to them. That feels familiar. Unfortunately, that often does not work out very well. Obviously, in the abusive relationship, it doesn't. But in enmeshed relationships, it also can get very, very sticky and, gosh, suffocating. So it's so important. You know, this is the least followed advice I ever give. That advice is wait. Wait until after a relationship that has been disappointing or very hurtful or just fizzled. Wait until you have enough time to look at exactly what we're talking about. What do I think was their responsibility? What do I think was mine? And what can I begin working on with my friends, with my work colleagues to begin to see how am I playing this out? You know, how can I see myself a little more objectively? I think it is so important. And I didn't follow my own advice years ago. Fortunately, I was married twice in my 20s because of this this kind of immaturity. And then finally, when my now husband of 32 years asked me to marry him, I said, I don't want to lose you. And I really think I love you. And I think you love me, but I've got to wait. I wanted to do some things differently. And we did do those things differently. And we waited and we've been married for 32 years. Getting divorced twice, I'm sure, was quite traumatic and having to learn to trust again. What did you have to do to know that you could trust yourself to get into a third marriage? If you want me to be frank, I had really used sexuality for control in relationships. That was not the thing to do. And I had also fought for control. I had to realize that I had grown up in a family where I was very controlled. And so I sought control, but I also hated control. And I fought against it strongly and used sexuality, sensuality in order to get my way. That doesn't work. Not long term. I had to recognize that I was the common element. You know, it's one thing if you get divorced and then it's another thing if you get divorced for the second time, you have to go, wait, wait a minute. I am the common thread here. And as humbling as that is, it definitely makes you take a look at yourself and again, take responsibility for your part. It's interesting that you brought up the sexuality thing for control and maybe on some level validation, because I actually I asked my followers, I said, after listening to today's episode, you know, do you have any questions about self-trust and self-esteem? And someone said, will you ask about how to not use relationships and sex for validation? Like, how do I build my self-esteem from the inside versus outsourcing it from other people? As soon as we're in a relationship, our defenses go way up and we pull out ways to make ourselves feel better that sometimes aren't new, healthy ways. They're old, unhealthy ways. Right. And so basically, you know, when you recognize that you yourself have been using sexuality or anything like that to lure people into relationships or anything like that, then you have to say, what what am I going to get? You know, when I do that, what's the most likely kind of relationship I'm going to get? A hypersexual one, one where, you know, you are usually expected to look a certain way and act a certain way and be a certain way when really that was just the way I entered the relationship. That really wasn't me. I mean, I was a sexual human being, but that was sort of an act I was putting on. I had to learn how to be me and not rely on what I knew I could perform. I could perform in that way. I was a fairly attractive 28, 29 year old. And so it usually worked, but I had to learn that I had other strengths and other competencies. One of the questions you asked me from the very beginning was this uh, woman had said she stayed because of self-esteem issues or something. One of the interesting things, and you know, psychologists, sometimes we get really overly picky about the meanings of 
the words. But I do think there's a slight difference between self-esteem and self-worth. And the way I think about it is self-esteem is something that if I write down, what do I feel self-esteem about? Usually it would be about that I could cook some really good Italian spaghetti. I used to sing pretty well. I've got a podcast that I love. I'm going to name things that I think are my strengths. But my self-worth is more intrinsic. It's more innate than that. It is about who I am as a person, not my attributes, not my characteristics, not my strengths, not my vulnerabilities. It is about my intrinsic worth. When she said I stayed because of self-esteem, my guess is she stayed out of fear. Because when you're in a relationship where you're, I mean, I'm sure way before this guy had an affair with her best friend or started a relationship with her best friend, there were all kinds of signs going on that she was being ignored or demeaned or manipulated. And so, you know, what kept her from seeing those things? And so often it is fear, fear of being alone, all that kind of thing. That's why I say stay out of a relationship for a while, because you can build your sense of being a okay with being alone. Self-worth is one of those things that I feel like, you know, because it's so easy to outsource it from other places or getting validation to sort of put a band-aid over what we're lacking in our own self-esteem or self-worth. Is there anything you can do? Are there tangible steps you can take to fill that void within yourself instead of looking for it in other places? When you're so busy looking for other people to fill you up, you miss the opportunities to have the recognition that your own presence in your own life, your own being, is important. I'll give people the, the the homework assignment to go watch a sunset by themselves, to go on a walk by themselves, to do something that a lot of times, go, go have a picnic by the lake by yourself and enjoy it. Recognize that you enjoy your own sense of worth, your own being in that moment. Yes, would someone else's presence enhance that perhaps? Yes, but there are all also things that you notice as a unique individual. It's not narcissism or grandiosity. It's just, I like what I see. I like the things that I am going to notice. A photographer is going to notice something on a walk that I would never notice until maybe I'm trying to learn photography. So I think that is, I know that sounds a little woo-woo, but it comes from within and there's just no way to begin to get that in relationship until you have your your unique understandings and and how you see the world and they have theirs and then you come together and you begin to appreciate what the other one brings because it enhances your life. You don't need it, but it enhances your life. What I'm really hearing from that is self-worth almost goes hand in hand with building a really strong sense of identity and feeling really comfortable moving in the world as a solo person. It's a really beautiful way of putting that. I hope I will be getting a lot of sunset photos after this episode airs. Yeah, it's really, it's an interesting interesting thing to ask yourself to do. And believe me, I've had many a patient who has said, I, I can't do that. I would feel stupid. I would feel like people were looking at me. Well, what's she doing by herself? People are too self-absorbed. They don't really care. <laughs> I'm going to backtrack a little bit to some of the things that we were talking about earlier with self-trust and feeling betrayed. So in this particular episode, the person that we interviewed, her ex-boyfriend left her for her best friend. Something that I hear a lot in my messages and my emails is people will say, once I've gotten cheated on, 
someone, I have a really hard time trusting my partner. I have all these intrusive thoughts saying I'm not with them. They're probably out doing something with somebody else. They have a hard time finding peace within themselves during, you know, a new relationship. If the thoughts start springing up, you know, a year into it, what are some things that people can do to combat that? One, my very first answer would be you might need to seek therapeutic intervention because it happened to me once. It's bound to happen to me again is what's called a a globalization of something, meaning you take one specific instance of something happening and you make it, oh, that's going to happen for the rest of my life. And that's a cognitive behavioral error. However, it's also very normal. If this happened to me once, I obviously, my picker is, there's something wrong with my picker or you're just, you were so hurt. There's a whole psychological disorder called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where you really relive things and you are triggered by things that are similar to it. And so you go into those kinds of reactions and responses because of getting triggered. You want, my husband now tells me, because my second ex had a terrible temper and was at times physically abusive to me. My now husband said at the beginning of our relationship that he could see me baiting him in some ways to make him mad. So I would be able to say, okay, I guess I'm safe, you know, because he hasn't hit me or screamed at me or whatever. So I was definitely playing out my fear of having chosen again. And basically about the only thing you can do is to say, you know, you're my first relationship after I had this really horrendous experience and it hurt me deeply. And I've been to therapy or I've really tried to work this out. I've read a lot of books or I've journaled or whatever, but it's likely that I'm going to play this out with you. And I'm going to try my best to allow new information in as quickly as I can, but it may take me longer. And that's just a choice you're making when you pick me. I tell people all the time that, and I know this myself, that when we enter relationships with someone, we're giving them permission to bring us great joy, but we're also giving them permission to hurt us. Not like, oh, it's okay if you hurt me, but because I'm choosing to be vulnerable with you, you are more likely to hurt me than someone else who I've not been vulnerable with. So that's just a reality of being in relationship, but you can give somebody a heads up and they may look at you and go, well, I don't really want to be in relationship with someone who is going to not trust me. And then you go, well, okay, so there's some information about this person. They need me to see them as the be all end all and that I'm not supposed to have any kinds of issues. Well, thank you. Goodbye. Because if you're being honest, then you can say this is going to be really hard for me. My now husband knew I had been tremendously hurt. And so he was prepared. He had also been hurt in another way, which is that's his life. So I won't share it. If it's a year or two or three into it and you're still struggling, then that's probably more about you, which you really then need to, it, it probably that distrust has its roots even further back than when you are so hurt by your ex. It's very likely to have really old roots that you don't understand yet. That's important to know as well. I mean, I think that's so true about anything in life. If you're choosing to be vulnerable, like I'm about to take a new job and I was thinking, well, I'm so safe here at this job that I have now. And, you know, I know what oh, to yeah. expect, but kind of choosing, okay, you can stay on the sidelines and you know, you'll be safe on the sidelines, but yeah, out in the game, like you could end up scoring a touchdown or experiencing great joy. And there's probably going to be disappointment. You are opening up yourself up to getting hurt again, but would you rather be on the bench? This is a great pivot to the final thing I want to sure. talk about. There was one term that, that was brought up a lot in this episode, gaslighting. Her ex-boyfriend basically gaslit her into thinking that nothing was happening with the best friend. And so that's how she ignored those signs that maybe something was happening in that pairing. And she chose to ignore it for self-esteem issues, but also, you know, not wanting to believe it as well. And the main question that people have been asking me since it aired is they're like, if I'm going through something like that and 
I feel like my partner is possibly gaslighting me. At what point do I draw boundaries and try and work through what I think may be gaslighting? Or when is it the right time to leave a relationship where I feel like I'm being manipulated in that way? I read that question when you sent it to me. And I thought people who actually are gaslighting will not take responsibility for their behavior. So you trying to have a discussion with them about what's going on is not going to happen. Gaslighting is a very common manipulative technique by people with narcissistic traits who, in fact, the more severe narcissism, kind of severe narcissism, where they really want to rob you of your sense of even safety and security about knowing who you are and what you think. This isn't about, oh, we did, you say, oh, we did that at three o'clock. And they go, no, I think it was closer to four. You know, this is about, oh, we did that at three o'clock. And they look at you and go, that didn't happen. What are you talking about? Unless you have been gaslit before and you are still fearing that other people are going to gaslight you, uh, which is, again, maybe more of your issue, or maybe you've chosen someone who's just like the person you were with. But if you are suspecting it, or if your girlfriends or your boyfriends, you know, whatever, your your friends' friends say, something's not right here. You're just not happy. You know, you seem to be losing security and you seem to be questioning yourself all the time, or you're saying you're sorry all the time, or we're seeing real changes in you. What's going on in your relationship? Listen to that because that's important. They're seeing changes in your inner sense of self-security that they're concerned about. I'm not sure I'd go out and recommend anything, but I would certainly suggest that saying, you know, we need to take a break. I need to figure out what's going on. I'm going to seek some some therapeutic advice. I don't feel good about what's going on in our relationship. And if they blow up with you, what are you talking about? I treat you like a king or a queen, and I can't believe you're saying this. And you know what? That's a hint. Because if I tell someone that really loves me, I don't feel good about something that's going on with us. Their response is going to be, well, what is it? And I want to hear it. And can we try to figure this out together? They're not going to get defensive. A narcissist or a person with narcissistic traits will get defensive and you've got your information. Are you going to listen to that information? Maybe not. Gaslighting is very, very hard to see when it's happening to you, when it's happening to somebody else. No problem. You can see it. But it's one of those very insidious kinds of things that can literally make you feel like you're losing your mind in its most severe form. And you're being told you are losing your mind. I remember my second ex used to say to me, better stay with me because if someone knew who you really were, someone knew what you were really like, they'd leave you. And he questioned everything that I thought. And that's why graduate school was so important because I was like, oh, people think I actually know what I'm talking about sometimes. Count on the people who truly love you to give you honest feedback about what kind of changes they see in you. Relationships are supposed to build you up. Relationships are supposed to enhance you. Relationships, good relationships are supposed to, you know, help you flourish as the person you want to be. And if they're not, then you're not in the right relationship. So the last note I'd love to leave on, because it seems like we could chalk up all these issues that we touched on today to really having a strong sense of self and self-worth and identity. If you could leave my listeners with just one pointer or one final takeaway for starting to build that really strong sense of self, what would you tell them? A question I think that is very helpful. I mean, I've already said some of these things that I think are good, like, you know, wait, spend time with yourself, get to know how you uniquely see the world and honor that, write about it, whatever. But I also think sometimes that we treat ourselves very poorly. We know our vulnerabilities. We know the things that we feel shame about. We know the things, we know the mistakes we've made. And many of us, me included for a long time, carry that around with an intense amount of shame. And someone who wants to manipulate you in a relationship will sense that and they will poke the bear. They'll poke your shameful bear all the time to realize, you know, I I have a 
a definition for the term self-acceptance, which again, we talk about self-worth, self-esteem, self-acceptance, I believe, is knowing that your strengths nor your vulnerabilities define you any more than the other. So that means I can have strengths, I can have vulnerabilities. Both of them are part of who I am. Neither one of them define me any more than the other part of me does. I pointed this out by saying I've been married three times, something I carried a lot of shame about for years. I have three letters after my name, something that's given me the license to do what I love to do. Neither one of those defines me any more than the other one. And I had to live a long time before I figured that out. If you want to hop on my whatever bit of wisdom I have, then maybe you can work on that definition of self-acceptance. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Margaret Rutherford, for joining us today. Again, be sure to check out her podcast, The Self Work Podcast, for a wealth of more information on, I'm sure, topics just like this that are so topical and important to us today. Thank you, Abby, so very much.